Just to read one more passage. I think I forgot to list the one that I'm preaching from. So that would be good. So I'm going to read that, do an introduction. By the way, I'm Pastor Steve, if you don't know me. Um, and uh, uh, you may have, if you read the weekly emails, uh, you would know uh, that Pastor Ken uh, is attending a funeral this weekend of someone who he uh, knew long ago. And um, so on Tuesday, we decided I would preach. So here we are, back in the book of John. And so for those of you who have been with us for a long time, like years, you'll know I'm picking up where I left off last time. Um, But if you would open up to uh, John chapter 5. And I don't know what the page number is for that, but John chapter 5. We'll be uh, looking at the first 18 uh, verses. And so let me read that uh, for us. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, uh, by the sheep gate, a pool, Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have, been, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going down, or while I'm going, another steps down before me. So Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now this day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked, so they asked him, who is the man who said to you take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who, who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews uh, that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing, things on, doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me open a second prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to be a people who see Christ and recognize him. We want to be a people who who hear of you and rejoice in our hearts. So, Father, I pray this morning that you would be at work in each of us. Lord, as we come here this morning, we come from many different places. Uh, We come from many different kinds of weeks. Some weeks have been relaxing. Some have been hectic. Some have been joyful. Some have been stressful and sorrowful. Some have been overwhelming. Lord, you know each of us. And so I pray, Lord, that you would meet each of us here today and show us Christ. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe 
that we might rejoice in our risen Savior. Father, we need Christ. We need him each and every day. Father, show us both our need and your willingness to meet us in that need. Fill us with rejoicing at, at your mercy and your grace and your compassion for us. Use now the text as we look at it from John chapter 5. And I pray that, uh, that the, the words of my mouth uh, would be clear and that your message would be spoken. Use me, but Father, I pray even more. Uh, speak through your, uh, by your spirit to each of us that we might hear and uh, rejoice in your truth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are looking at uh, the third of Jesus' signs that John records in the Gospel of John. John intentionally uses the word sign, although I say that and then he doesn't use it in this chapter, but he uses the word sign uh, in his Gospel instead of simply the word miracle uh, because, he, uh, because these signs point to something greater. He wants his readers to know that something greater uh, is, is coming about because of Jesus. John does record other miraculous things that Jesus does, but each of these signs, specific signs, these seven signs, point to the deity of Christ. Uh, and uh, through the sign that we're looking at this morning, through this healing uh, at the pool, uh, I hope that we will see that Jesus reveals quite a bit of himself. He, we, he reveals his compassion, his mercy, and his mission. And as the Son of God, he, all of those are important, right? And so he displays who he is as the Son of God. But uh, those who were there, not all of them could see. Not all of them had eyes to see. And so that's why I wanted us to pray that we would believe, we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. Well, as we begin or dive back into John, I, I want to remind us again of uh, the end of John where he tells us of his purpose or why he wrote this entire gospel. And the reason was, is found in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He wrote that Jesus did many other signs, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John has a purpose in what he is telling us. And in our text this morning, I hope to show that God calls us to trust in Christ's work, both his, his finished and his ongoing work. His finished work on the cross as well as the ongoing work, part of which we will see this morning. And so we'll look at four ways that, that I see that the text displays this work of Christ. And the first one that we'll look at this morning is that God calls us to trust in the finished and ongoing work of Christ which is first seen through his compassion for the weak. It's seen through his compassion for the weak. As I mentioned, that there were these seven signs that John records in the gospel, seven miraculous uh, things that Jesus did that point to his messiahship, that, God, that he was, in fact, the one that God had promised in the Old Testament. Just to look back, right, in chapter 2, right, in the wedding of Canaan, he turned water into wine. Right? And not only did, was that miraculous, but it also pointed forward to uh, the final feast uh, that, that all believers will have uh, where God feeds us in heaven. Chapter 4, he healed the official son. And then now in chapter 5, we read about Jesus healing uh, what is described as an invalid. Well, I just read the text, so I'm not going to read it again. But 
uh, let me summarize a, a little bit and, and walk us through the text and, and try and point out what, what we see in there. So uh, John really, I think, in some ways gives us a, a, a view that is kind of up high and then he, he brings us down in. So right after he had finished healing uh, the official son, uh, there was a, a feast in Jerusalem, a feast of the Jews. Doesn't tell us which one. Doesn't really matter. But he comes, Jesus comes to Jerusalem. And then he tells us, he points out that in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, which is the house of mercy, you find this five-roofed colonnade, right? It's a, it's a structure with pools, and then there's, there's these walkways that are covered and in these walkways, there's a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. John describes this scene for us, that this pool uh, with all of these people in it, right? They have shelter from the sun, but, but they're all laying there. John tells us, right, that, that there's right, this multitude of, of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, um, and what, what we read, well, let me tell you a little bit about these pools. There's, there's been some research done, uh, both archaeology and then uh, there's been other research done uh, by biblical scholars. And apparently these pools, there were two pools, right? And they were fed by large reservoirs called Solomon's Pools. And scholars believe that they may have also been fed by intermittent streams, right? Which every once in a while would come up and cause uh, a disturbance in the water, and, and I think that's an important point, because if you're looking at your text, right, if you're looking at the Bible in front of you, depending on what version of the Bible you're reading, you're going to notice that verse 4 is missing. Right? One, two, three, five. Right? It may not even be there. There may be a, a footnote in your Bible at the end of verse 3 that says that some manuscripts insert either in part or in whole the following words. Right, that they were waiting for the movement of the water. For the angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So we've got to ask, why, why is that not in my Bible? Right? Maybe it is in your Bible. You could make an argument, maybe it shouldn't be in your Bible. Right? The reason why... Uh, that these words don't appear in many of uh, our modern translations is because they don't appear in the oldest and the best manuscripts of John's gospel. Right? So the best manuscripts don't even have it. But I think it's helpful for us to point it out because I think it tells us what's going on. There are probably side notes uh, that one of the scribes put into the margins to describe a popular belief of the time. Right? And it explains why there were all these people, right? all these invalids around the pool but we'll come back to that just in a moment. So then among this mass of people, uh, we find that uh, lying there is a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. I want you to just think about that for, for a minute. 38 years is a long time, right? It, it's longer than many of you here have even been alive. We don't know if he was, John doesn't tell us, right? If he was born with a disability, or if something happened to him as a child, or maybe as an adult, but 38 years he's had this disability. John doesn't tell us even what his disability is, but judging by verse 7, we see 
that he might have been paralyzed or crippled in some way or just incredibly weak. What we do know is that it was a struggle for him just to get down to the water, just to move. And in the midst of that multitude of people, the text says that he had no one to help him. There was nobody with him, nobody advocating for him. It makes me wonder, where did he live, right? Where was this man's family, right? Did, some, uh, did the man live there or did, did someone from his family bring him down to the pool each morning, maybe even that morning, uh, while they went about doing other things? Think about that, 38 years. How many days had that man laid by that pool, day by day, month by month, year by year, waiting? Well, John doesn't answer these questions because he doesn't feel like they're important for what he is telling us. We wonder them, but we don't know. We don't know the truth. But he does tell us that this is where Jesus went. Into this multitude, this mass of people, Jesus sought, Jesus sought out. Uh, Jesus was sought out by important men like Nicodemus, the official, and, and they all came to him. Like, even think about the woman at the well. If you remember that, he went to the well, but but she came to him. This is the first time that we see Jesus going to someone in the Gospel of John, but here Jesus goes and seeks out this man who is physically weak and broken. We see that Jesus doesn't disregard, but he has compassion for those who are weak. He seeks them out. I had a friend in college uh, who was paralyzed, and uh, he was in a wheelchair all the time, a motorized wheelchair. And he told me that sometimes he felt like he was invisible. I was like, what are you talking about? And if you knew him, right, he was bigger than life. Like, you'd say, hi, hey, Chris, hey, how's it going? And he always had joy and he was such a ball of life he said he felt like he was invisible because so many people just ignored him right he'd be going on his way to class and people would never even look him in the eye they would just kind of move out of the way and and keep moving but Jesus doesn't ignore people just because they're different right even if everyone think about this even if everyone around you disregards you, right, because you're not as strong as everybody else, or you can't do what others can do, or you don't feel like you're as smart as everyone else, Jesus does not disregard you. The reality is we're all all weak, right? We're all broken in some way by sin and the fall. may not be physically, right? Your weakness may not be obvious to everyone around you, may not be severe, but if we're honest with ourselves, we all would admit, I think, to weakness, Either that or you're not old enough to admit to your weakness. But Jesus does not despise you in your weakness. He's not repulsed by it. Instead, he sees your weakness and he approaches you with compassion. That's the heart of Christ. We see it here. And that really frees us, I think, to to live a life of humility, doesn't it? We we don't have to pretend to be strong. We don't have to pretend. Tend to be anything that we're not to be acceptable to God. And if we don't have to pretend before God, right, we shouldn't really have to pretend before each other, should we? That humility should also drive us to look at one another with that same love and compassion that has been shown to us by the Lord. Right? It challenges us to see one another, not disregard other people because of their weakness or their, 
their life situation. And this brings us then to our second point. God calls us to trust in the finished and ongoing work of Christ displayed through both, uh, his, uh, we, both for his compassion for the weak and through his mercy for the helpless. Secondly, for his mercy for the helpless. God's mercy was not just for the multitude right, of helpless people. He didn't, it wasn't just like those out there. Like, I, I care about everybody, including those guys. Right? It's not a theoretical care and mercy for the helpless. It's also not just for those who right, he might find agreeable, right? or those who are pleasant or kind, or as we'll see later, not even just for those who show proper gratitude in return for his mercy. God's mercy is poured out individually. As verse 6 tells us, that when Jesus saw him, the man lying there, and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? No, we have to ask ourselves, how is it that Jesus knew this about the man? And I think that in the same way that Jesus prophetically knew all about the woman at the well and her past, I, I think here, Jesus has supernatural knowledge of this man at the pool. God told him. And so he sought him out specifically. And with that knowledge, Jesus approached the man. He doesn't come with a condescending attitude or accusation or ridicule. He comes with compassion. Jesus knew the man, and he knew what the man needed, right? He he knew his condition. But he asked him, do you want to be healed? And so... We have to ask, what is Jesus asking? Why is he asking him? Well, on one level, right, Jesus is asking the man if he wants to be made well, if he wants to be made whole. That word could also be translated as to be made whole. Right? Does this man want to leave his weakness and suffering behind? And we think, well, of course, why wouldn't he? On another level, Jesus is asking the man if he's willing to leave his current life behind. Well, Come on, his life of disability? Of course, why wouldn't he? He lived with this condition, though, for 38 years. Right? It was the life that he knew. Right? And to be healed would mean leaving all that behind. And I think this is the challenge, facing an unknown future. Well, we may still think, of course, he would want to be healed. But listen to how the man responds. Right? The text tells us that the sick man answered Jesus, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. In other words, it's not possible. It's a lost case. Don't don't even bother asking. It's one way we could take his words. There's this sense of hopelessness in his words. He's tried this before, right? He's physically unable to get himself into the pool quickly enough Right? The physical effort is just too much. He's no one to help him. And 38 years has shown him that the competition for these healing waters is just too great amongst the multitude. Right? It just isn't going to work. I mean, think about that. Right? This multitude, probably hundreds of ill people, and the water is stirred up and the first one gets healed. A number of years ago, uh, my went to visit my brother in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. He was single, I was single. It was a fun week, because we just drove around, and he showed me all of these amazing sights. 
He wanted me to see everything that New, uh, New Mexico uh, had to, to offer, right? So we went hiking, we went climbing, and one of the places that we went to was this really, really old chapel built in 1816. That was when the new chapel was built, was 1816, right? And, and just off to the side of this chapel, right, as we went in, there was just this little room, and he, he took me, to, he showed me, and in this room was this little hole in the floor, and the legend says, right, that the dirt in the hole is thought to be holy dirt with healing properties. And I mean, it sounds kind of ridiculous to us. It sounds like I'm making this up. It's really there. Right? It's the reason why this chapel was built in 1816 was because of this legend that this dirt would make people well. People would come and they would take some of the dirt One woman came, put it in her mouth. One person rubbed it on themselves. Each person taking a little bit of the dirt. What's amazing is that three, they report, right, and I believe them, right, that 300,000 people visit that tiny chapel every year. That's a lot of dirt, right? Think about how many times they have to refill that dirt. But I don't think those people think about that. I do believe, I I, I genuinely believe that God can heal people, but I don't find any biblical warrant, right, that that he would bring about healing in a way that is so random and so dependent upon the person, right? It seems like a, a cruel, twisted lottery system meant to create false hope and just stir up superstition. And so that's why I believe that that verse should not be in there. I think that's what people believed at the time, but I don't think that it was the Spirit of the Lord stirring up the waters. I think it was a similar kind of superstition that rose up around these bubbling pools. But but people believed it. This man believed it. And what did it create in him? But a sense of hopelessness and despair, a sense that he was stuck the way he was. Think about what Jesus could have done in that moment. Right? In, in, in a moment, a display of compassion and mercy, Jesus could have offered to carry the man into the water. I'll, I'll carry you into the water. And he could have healed the man in the water. Jesus could have done that. But then the man would have credited his healing to the water instead of Jesus. He would have missed what was in front of him. And so instead, Jesus simply says to the man with these words, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And like that, the man was healed, right? Without the use of the pool or the water or dirt in a hole. No, nothing magical, nothing in between. Simply his powerful words. And I think this then leads us to the third point, that God calls us to trust in the finished and ongoing work of Christ as seen through his compassion for the weak, mercy for the helpless, and the the revealing glory of Christ. Revealing of Christ's glory. Jesus says, get up, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. I just think, wow, that's amazing, right? Right? The healing itself was complete. 38 years, right? Try laying down for 38 years and tell me if you're going to be strong enough to get up and walk. Probably not. But any weakening of his body from a lifetime of immobility was instantly gone. 
And not only did he have strength uh, and balance and ability to walk, he was also able to carry his mat just like that. His healing was complete. We see, as Julie read from Isaiah chapter 35, a partial fulfillment of that text, right? The eyes of the blind shall be opened. We know Jesus will be doing that, right, in, in the gospel. And the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. We know that Jesus will perform that miracle. But here then, then shall the lame man leap like a deer. The lame, he's made well. He can walk. Jesus clearly revealed his power and his glory through the healing of this man. And we could end the sermon there and all rejoice and go home. But I think then we would miss the point of what is happening here. Every time I've read this up until this last week of just really pouring over the text, this is where the music would come in, right, in my mind. The dun, 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 right? Then the rest of the verse, now the day was the Sabbath. Oh, no. Up to now in the Gospel of John, Jesus has received, Jesus has been received without much controversy or opposition. Right? Even after, think about this, in chapter 2, he cleared the temple of the money changers. Nicodemus came very respectfully. He's not received any opposition until this time. And so the tone of the passage changes right here. You see, the reality is that the Jews and the Jewish leaders, and, and there's a specific word that John uses. To, to, he's not just talking about any Jews. He's talking about these particular Jews, uh, Jewish leaders, when he uses the, the word translated there for the Jews. These Jewish leaders took the Sabbath very seriously. right? And well, they should, right? right? The Sabbath was connected to creation. God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested, and therefore, he called his people to rest. Right? As, once again, was read in Exodus 31, the Lord said to Moses, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for, thee, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. It's me. You shall keep the Sabbath, because it's holy for you. Everyone who profanes the Sabbath shall be put to death. This is serious, right? Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. Seems pretty permanent, seems pretty important, seems worth paying attention to. Well, the scriptures, as we read, they clearly forbid work on the Sabbath. But the question is what exactly constitutes work? D.A. Carson uh, wrote that the assumption in the scripture uh, seems to be that, that work uh, referred to one's customary employment, but judging by Certain other works, the oral traditions and other writings, uh, extra-biblical writings, uh, uh, dominant rabbinic opinion had analyzed the prohibition into 39 classes of work, including carrying or, um, I'm sorry, taking or carrying anything from one domain, one, one house, to another, except 
for cases of compassion, such as carrying a paralytic. In other words, you could carry the paralytic, a lot of work, but the paralytic can't, once he's healed, can't carry his mat home, because that would be work. So that's why we see in verse 10, when the Jewish leaders see the man walking, carrying his mat, the Jews say to the man who's just been healed, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Because what are you doing? We ask the question, was the man actually breaking the Sabbath? Well, by Old Testament law, it's not clear that the man was breaking. I'm reading from Carson again. It's not clear that the man was breaking the law since he did not carry mats around for a living. Got off on a technicality. Good thing Jesus, he must have known that, right? But according to the tradition of the elders, the man was breaking the law since he was breaking one of the prohibited 39 categories of work to which the law was understood to refer. So, so which is it? Uh, well, I think we'll find out. But what does the man do? The man doesn't quote any of this. The man doesn't quote D.A. Carson. The man throws Jesus under the bus. Kind of. The man responds by saying, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. The man doesn't say a whole lot throughout this. He, he tells Jesus why he can't be healed. And he tells uh, these Jewish officials, is Jesus, right? That guy who healed me, he, he's the one who told me to take up my pen. Well, I wouldn't have done it if he hadn't told me to do it. But look at his words. What does he say? The man who healed me, that man, is pointing to Jesus, right? It, it made sense that a man who actually healed, who completely transformed this man's life, would also have the authority to tell him to take up his bed and walk. But then look, look at verse 12. How do, the, how do these Jewish leaders respond? They say, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Do you notice anything missing? Do you notice anything they didn't catch? They never even mention or acknowledge Jesus' healing. Never throughout this whole passage, will they? Right? You get the sense that not only do they not care about what the man said, they don't even care the fact that he was healed. The thing is, it's possible, uh, right, to say and, and even do all of the right things and still miss what is most important, right? We read in Matthew uh, 23, 23, where Jesus is, is rebuking the Pharisees. He's saying, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. In the same way, these Jewish leaders were blind. But then we also see Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. He warns that a person can do all manner of spiritual things. But if they do not have love, they're nothing. The Jewish leaders thought that they knew what was most important, but they completely missed the fact that God was at work glorifying his son right in their midst. They missed it. They didn't hear it. Later in this same chapter, in chapter 9, starting with uh, nine, John 9, 39, Jesus will say, right, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may, come, may become blind. 
So some of the Pharisees were offended at this. Some of the Pharisees near him heard him say these things, and they said to him, Oh, so are we blind? And Jesus said to him, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. As one theologian wrote, In religious matters, there are none so blind as those who are always certain that they see. May God grant to us as individuals and as a a congregation humility to protect us from the kind of certainty that would blind us from God's truth. In the same way, we're going to see here in just a moment that just as you can say that it's possible to say and even do all the right things and still miss what is most important, it's also possible to say and do incorrect things and, and still be the object of God's mercy. Right? So what do we find then in, in verse 13? The man who had been healed, he didn't even know Jesus' name. Like, don't you think you would stop and ask him, like, whoa, you just healed me? I just got up. Who are you? How do I? We don't get any of that. He didn't fall down at Jesus' feet and ask to be his disciple like we see other people do in the Gospels. John doesn't even tell us that he thanked Jesus. But yet this is a picture of God's grace, isn't it? Right, Sacrificially pouring out mercy into our lives, right? even when we don't deserve it, even when we don't properly acknowledge God or thank him for it, it's yet another picture of God's grace. And this then leads us to the fourth point, right? that God calls us to trust in the finished and ongoing work of Christ seen through his compassion for the weak, his mercy for the helpless, uh, the uh, revealing of Christ's glory, and then fourthly, his work that brings us into his rest. His work that brings us into his rest. So as we look at the rest of the passage, we're going to kind of take it in a lump and then break it down. It seems that some time has passed. It says, some time later, Jesus finds the man in the temple and he rebukes him for not thanking him. No, he doesn't, right? No, Jesus doesn't do that. In the text, we see that he, he finds the man. He says, see that you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. He calls the man to live a life of repentance and live a life that's Godward. We'll find out later in John that, uh, that there'll be a man who is healed and we'll say, well, which, who, which one uh, sinned, his mother or, or he, that he, was, that he was blind? And Jesus is there going to say, right, just because you're blind doesn't mean somebody sinned. But what does he say here? Right, see that you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. I just want to break this down just for, for a moment, right? It's, it's possible that Jesus knew all about this man. It's, it's possible that his sin had led to his disability. We don't know, and that's speculation, but think about that. It just as intentional as Jesus was, he was saying, hey, I have healed you. Now, take your life and move toward God. Don't, don't do your own thing. Seek after God where there is life. Nothing worse, I, I think, obviously, we'll see later in the chapter when we get to it, which we will get to it in September, by the way. There's plans to, to get back to John in September. We'll see at that time that he's talking about the judgment. Jesus 
cares about the man's physical well-being. He heals him, but he really cares about his soul. It's not enough just to care about his physical well-being. It's the soul that Jesus is truly concerned with. But then in an unexpected response, what do we see? The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. Before, if he threw Jesus under the bus, now he got Jesus into trouble. John tells us this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. This is off notes, right? But I can't help but wonder, what does this man, like once he sees Jesus in glory, I just wonder, he's like, I am so sorry. This was the will of God, right? But imagine, right, that that was, says because he was, right, he went and told, and that was the reason why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus could then, at that moment, have defended his actions by pointing out that according to Old Testament law, he didn't actually break the Sabbath, and neither did that guy. He didn't really break it. But what does Jesus do instead? Instead, Jesus answered him, my father is working until now, and I am working. They blew up, right? This was like, it seemed like maybe the worst thing to say. They were persecuting him, and now they wanted to kill him. But why was this statement so provocative? We're told then in verse 18, right? This is why the Jews were seeking to kill him, all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus was making himself equal with God. Why? Because he's God. He referred to to God as my father. We think about the Lord's Prayer. We say our father. Sometimes when we pray our father, our heavenly father, but the fact that he used the first person, my father, that was offensive. And then Jesus also claimed that whatever factors uh, justify God's continuous work from creation, including his work on the Sabbath, also justified his. It changes things a little bit. At, At the time, There was no argument that God continually was at work holding all things together. In fact, the rabbis would say that if God was not working continually or if he himself rested on the Sabbath, that all providence would go out of whack every week, once a week. So they believed that, yes, God had rested. And as we see from Hebrews, he is still at rest. And yet at the same time, he is working Constantly working. We know the same thing. It's right. He's working to hold all things together. He's working all things for good for those who love him. He's working to bring himself glory. That God must be at work. He's constantly at work. But nobody accused the Father of breaking the Sabbath. There are reasons for that, right? That you could argue, or some some of the Jews of that day argued that well. You could do things within your house, but you just couldn't, like, carry a mat outside your house. And, well, the world is is the Lord's, right? It's all his, so he's staying in there. But whatever excuse that they felt justified the Father, now Jesus was claiming. And they were right that Jesus was making himself equal to God because he is God. 
the other thing that, that I just, right, it, I couldn't wrestle away from the fact that Jesus didn't have to heal on the Sabbath. The guy was there for 28 years. He could have waited until the next day to heal the man. But Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath to point to his mission. Tom Schreiner wrote that Jesus deliberately healed on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath anticipates the eschatological rest for God's people. He's pointing to the future, right, where we will all be in God's rest. We will enter into his rest. He claimed that it was legitimate for him to work on the Sabbath because the Father was working as well. Jesus then implicitly conceded the point of the Jewish leaders. He was indeed working on the Sabbath, but such actions were, uh, are legitimate. For as the Son, he does only what the Father does. And he'll say that over and over in the rest of the chapter. This is John's way of saying that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath law no longer has the same stature now that the Son of the Father has arrived. He works with sovereign freedom on the Sabbath to heal and to cure because the Sabbath is the day on which, things, on which these healings should occur. Think about that. We enter into rest. We enter into wholeness. By releasing human beings from their burdens and diseases, Jesus grants the rest that the Sabbath signified. Whoa. Jesus was pointing that, that he is the Sabbath. right? He is the one who brings in the Sabbath. Jesus did not need to heal to show the Jewish leaders their hypocrisy and Sabbath-keeping. But that's exactly what blinded them to seeing Jesus. Jesus was revealing his glory and showing them his mission in the world. Right, because every believer will eventually enter into God's rest because of Christ's finished work on the cross. And so that is what Jesus was bringing. He was showing a glimpse of that. And so as believers, even here today, right, there, there is rest for us. Right? There, there will be rest in the future, but there is rest for us today. Right? Rest from our dead works and for the, the need to, uh, to do things to accomplish righteousness. Rest from our need to earn our salvation. As Christians, God calls us to trust in the finished work of Christ, what he did on the cross, as well as the ongoing work of Christ, that he will one day fully finish when he brings us all into his glory. He calls us to trust not in our own works, but in his work, his work that's pleasing to God and brings us into his glorious rest. I was thinking about this, right? And, the, you know, as we read uh, these texts, as I read these texts, I think about, okay, in what way am, am I like the man, right? The, the man who is healed, recipient of God's mercy, and yet so often totally ungrateful, so, so often oblivious. But in the same way, then, we ask, how are we like these Jewish leaders? And I think as a church, we have to, I have to protect myself, we have to protect ourselves in our, in our own zeal to know God and to have right theology, have everything perfect. We need to be careful that we don't become blinded by our own understanding, but they were always willing to let the scriptures teach us. We never want to lose sight of who 
Christ truly is. It was what bugged me all week when I couldn't figure out how Jesus was not breaking the Sabbath. So we just kept working. And, and I want us to do the same thing. Not to be so committed to our systems and our own thoughts and what we think we know that we are unwilling to go and learn from the scriptures from God himself. And God calls us to trust, not in our own understanding, but in the finished work and the ongoing work of Christ through his compassion that's seen through his compassion for the weak, his mercy for the helpless, the revealing of Christ's glory, and it's also seen through his work that brings us into his rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in your mercy, you have shown us Christ. In your mercy, you have given us invitation into a life that is renewed, that is transformed. Your forgiveness has changed us. It has taken us from death to life, from darkness into light. So, Father, I, help, I ask that you would help us to be people who humbly come before you with hearts that are rejoicing and thankful with attitudes that are, are looking to you and to your glory, that, that we might glorify Christ. Keep us humble, Father, I pray. Keep us expectant, knowing that it is by your spirit that we learn, that you teach us. And so, Father, as, as we go from here this day, as we sing these songs, I pray that you would help us to rejoice, that you're a God who does not leave us alone, but one who goes finds us, saves us, and shows us yourself. Pray for uh, hearts that would rejoice in this. Amen.